John chapter 12, verses 12 through 22. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh, sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things unto him. The people, therefore, that was with him when he called Lazarus out of his grave and raised him up from the dead bare record. For this cause the people also met him, for that they heard that he had done this miracle. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world is gone after him. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip telleth Jesus. And thus is the reading of God's word, and all his children say, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, as we have prayed through him, we desire to see Jesus, to know him, to love him, and to understand and appreciate all of the things that he has done. This we ask this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, with respect to the history and the chronology about what things are taking place here, I think we can appreciate that um, Jesus has spent the night on the Mount Olives. In, the, in John here, the history of what is taking place is compressed. The other Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, uh, tell us what has happened, the order that things have happened, and what he did before he got to the Mount of Olives. But he's going to spend the night on the Mount of Olives. The previous day, he has ascended all the way up from Jericho, which is a long walk. He went to Bethany, where he went to Simon the leper's house, and there he supped with a number of people, including certainly Lazarus, Martha, and Mary's. And there were others there as well. However, he departs before sunset, and he passes through Bethpage, where he has directed his disciples to go get for him a colt, the foal of an ass, and from there they go to the Mount Olives. So it has gone from Nisan the 9th to Nisan the 10th. So he's got to be, before sunset, he's got to be at the Mount of Olives because it's the Passover is coming. And what do we know from Exodus 12 about when do you take the Passover lamb that's going to be sacrificed? You're to take it on Nisan the 10th. So on Nisan the 10th, that is going to be the day that he's going to ride and go into Jerusalem as the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, which is what... Um, the Gospel of John identified him as when um, John the Baptist pointed to Christ and made it very clear, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Now, so there he is on the night of, uh, I'm going to call it the night of Nisan the 10th, but we all know that that starts sunset on Nisan the 9th. Their days begin at sunset and end the following sunset. Ours go from midnight to midnight, so theirs goes from, let's say, 8 p.m., one day to 8 p.m. on another day. So I want us to appreciate the calendar here because God is going to make sure that he follows every ordinance within the law. We can also appreciate why he might um, spend the night on the Mount of Olives is because um, there is no room for him at the inn. And I'm intentionally using the language that applied during his birth when they went down to Bethlehem because of the census. There was no room at the inn. It's crowded. All the people are there. And he 
there's no room, so they take them to um, a stable. I think that's what it is. Some people say a cave, but but, uh, in any event, Josephus says that there was probably 2.7 million people present for the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread at that time. Another historian says there were between 300 and 500,000 people that had come there for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which begins with the Passover. So I think we can appreciate that without a doubt, the place was crowded with people, and so it was uh, necessary for him to spend the night on the Mount of Olives. The Gospels actually say that. I think it's in the book of Luke. It said that he resorted thither. So not just that night, but then when he would go in and teach in Jerusalem, he'd go back to the Mount of Olives. Sometimes he went over to, um, I believe, uh, Bethany. So as the scripture says, he has no place to lie his head, which we know what that means in a spiritual sense, that eventually he's going to lay it in our hearts. But we're not there yet. Um, so... Again, in order to comply with the, all of the provisions of the law, he's going to spend the night on uh, Mount of Olives. Now, the next day, Nisan the 10th, coincidentally, happens to be a Sabbath day. And the Sabbath day has lots of laws or lots of rules associated with it in terms of what you can and cannot do because you cannot do any work on the Sabbath day. You can only travel so far on the Sabbath day. And there's only one place in the Bible that tells you how far you can travel on the Sabbath day, which is found in Acts chapter 1, verse 12. And guess how far that is? It's from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. That's how far you can travel on a Sabbath day. So God has given us this piece of information that we would appreciate that Jesus is always in compliance with the law. And though we might ignorantly transgress the law, and there are offerings to be made for ignorant transgressions, Jesus never transgressed any laws Certainly not ignorantly, not knowingly, none. He complied with every one of them. There were no ignorant omissions. So there he is on the Mount of Olives. He's going down the next day into the city on the Sabbath day. And we know in the Bible it says that's how far he can travel. So here he is. He's starting his journey down the Mount of Olives. And people are crying out, Hosanna, which means save us. They're crying out, Hosanna, which means save us, which our deacon read for us in Psalm 118, verse 25. They were doing what it says in Psalm 118, verse 25. And we're going to find out they're doing that in another place, too. They are crying out, Hosanna, blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So a kingdom is coming. Now, when they say Hosanna, they say save us. You've got to ask your question Save us from what? Save us from the occupational forces? Now, supposing you happen to be a Roman soldier patrolling on the Temple Mount on the east side, because you can see all of this. The fortress of Antonia is immediately north of the temple complex. So there are Roman soldiers all over the place. So you have, if you happen to be up there on the wall, you're going to hear what's happening. And you're going to ask yourself, what in the world is going on? The city's crowded. There's a lot of consternation and commotion going on. And when you hear something like that, you know, uh, blessed be the kingdom of our father David. You hear people crying out, Hosanna, in verse 13 of John chapter 12 here. Blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. So a, a kingdom is coming, and a king is coming. You're going to wonder what's going on here. As a matter of fact, you might suddenly start to feel very conspicuous because you are part of the uh, Roman occupational force. If it were me, I would probably drop a hand to my uh, sword. I might just take my hand and rest it on there. We've all seen police officers when things get a little uncomfortable. You know, they're not going to be standing there like this. Their hands kind of drop so they can get them, uh, guard their weapons and, and be ready if they need them. Suppose that happens to be you and you hear this commotion. Well, 
you're going to look out across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives. And what do you see? You're, you're looking and you're like, well, what is going on here? You're going to be looking for horses. Maybe you'll be looking for some chariots. You might be looking for um, swords, you know, glinting in the, in the, off the, uh, the, the sunlight. You might be looking for a king on a white stallion or a prominent horse of some kind. You're going to be looking for some honored, honored personage coming, leading an army or leading an entourage of some kind. You're going to be looking for that. And that's consistent with Scripture. When Joseph was honored by Pharaoh, he was given the second chariot to ride in so that everybody would know he was. I think he had something around his neck and he had the king's seal. Everybody knew that Joseph was to be honored because of uh, the... Um, because of the trappings and because of the, the chariot and the horses that, that he was given. In the book of Esther, um, when King Azurus wants to know how to honor a man, he's given some advice. Well, here's what you do. You put the king's apparel on the individual, you put him on the king's horse, and you put the king's crown on his head, and then you have somebody lead him around the city making that proclamation that this is whom the king delighteth in. So, you should expect to see something like that when you're looking down across the Kidron Valley. In um, 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 1, when Absalom is trying to build himself up in front of the people, what does he do? He gives himself chariots and horses and 50 men to ride in front of him. So he's trying to puff himself up in front of the eyes of the people. And so if I was up there, that's what I'd be looking for. I'd be looking for something like that. But this particular soldier, he's going to be looking out and he's going to be looking for some centrality of movement because he doesn't see any of those things that he would be expecting to see. So in the centrality of the movement on the opposite side of the hill, he sees people casting down their garments and placing palm fronds in front of what appears to be a man sitting on a yearling ass, slowly riding down the hill. And then he sees him stop amidst the shouting crowds, he's like, well, wait a minute, is he weeping? Really? Is he weeping? The people are crying out, save us, blessed be the king of Israel who cometh in the name of the Lord. And this is their king. Have you, I mean, you, you've got to be kidding me. Really? Their king is plainly dressed and he's riding on an ass, the colt, the foal of an ass, and he's weeping. This is the most conspicuous of sights I can imagine amidst all of the tumult, the, the tumult. What a strange thing to look at. And this king is going to save them from what? And how is he going to do that? Those are all very good questions. You recall back in, in 1 Samuel chapter 8 that it was an occasion when the people wanted to um, be like all of the other nations. So they came to Samuel and, they said, Samuel, and they said, we want a king so we can be like all of the other nations. We want a king who will go out before us and fight our battles for us. Now, what they really meant was, we want to have like a standing army of other people's sons, not my son, but other people's sons, and they will go out and fight for us. Because clearly David is not going to go out by himself and overthrow the Amalekites. He's going to take an army with him, but we don't want that to include our sons. And that's the way a lot of people like to do things today. They like to spend other people's money. They like to go and fight wars in other countries with other people's sons. So this is another one of those biblical statements, which is a prophetic statement, which the people don't really understand what they're saying. Just like Caiaphas did not really understand when he said, know ye not 
that it is expedient that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. Caiaphas didn't know what he was talking about, but God knew what he was talking about. God knew what he put in his mouth, and he tells us that in the next verse here, that he was speaking really about Christ and that he was going to die for the true Israel, not national Israel, but the true Israel of God. And so this statement about how they want a king to go out before them and fight their battles comes true in Christ. That is exactly what Christ is going to do. He is a king, and he is going to go before them to fight their battle against sin, against Satan, against the world, against the flesh, and even death itself. For those are the enemies of man. And he's going to do it all by himself. And Jesus is probably the only person around there in that city who knows what he's going to do. And he's come to conquer and he's come to destroy all of these things through his death. He is coming to Jerusalem to die. Now back in John chapter 6, verse 15, after feeding the 5,000, the people tried to take him by force and to make him a king. And this they did because it appealed to their flesh that they would do so. And so here with a similar motive, and some of these appreciate what he has done for Lazarus. It says that there are people that were there when Lazarus was raised from the dead. But with a similar motive, I think we have this in this larger picture of this whole crowd. They are crying out, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. Of the Lord. But what we have to appreciate here is that this is not a physical war. It is not a war against an opposing army like the Romans. But I would ask you, how difficult would it be for Christ, who is God manifest in flesh, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead, bodily dwells in him. How difficult would that be for him to destroy the Roman army, sitting on the colt, the foal of an ass? Well, let's think about what he's done in the past. Remember back in Genesis chapter 7 when he destroyed all air-breathing life on the surface of the earth and that flew in the heaven. Destroyed it all. Remember what he did to the Egyptians? It says there, the angel of the Lord slew all of the firstborn. Not an angel. The angel of the Lord slew all of the firstborn. It's very selective. You remember when uh, the military complex came out with the neutron bomb? What a big deal that was because you could drop it, not destroy any property, but kill everybody. Here, the angel of the Lord destroys, kills only the firstborn from Pharaoh all the way down to he who's in the dungeon, including the cattle. After that, Pharaoh's army um, pursued the Israelites into the wilderness or uh, through the Sinai Peninsula and halfway through the Red Sea. And what did God do there? Exodus 14, verse 24 and 25 says, And it came to pass that in the morning watch... The Lord looked unto the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and of the cloud, which we know was above them, leading them, and troubled the host of the Egyptians and took off their chariot wheels that drave them heavily so that the Egyptians said, they figured out what's going on here, but too late. The Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians." They figured out that it was God who was fighting against them. Remember what happened to Jericho. March around the city seven times, blow the trumpet, and the walls come down. Who do you suppose did that? How did those walls come down? Obviously, by the hand of God. 
Recall in the book of Joshua when Joshua was fighting against the five kings of the Amorites. They fought a battle. The Israelites slew some of them, but who slew most of the people and how were they slain? They were killed by hailstorms. Verse 11, And it came to pass as they fled from before Israel and were in the going down to Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Ezekiah, and they died. There were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. And then very soon thereafter that, we um, read that the Lord stayed the rotation of the moon and the earth so the day would be longer and they could slay more people. Clearly God is the one who is doing the fighting for his enemies here. Remember when the Syrian army had uh, camped and laid siege to Samaria? The people were starving so much so that they resorted to cannibalism. What did the Lord do? They wake up one morning and the entire army is gone. The Assyrian army fled because they thought they heard another army coming against them. Well, who did they hear? They heard the Lord of hosts and they fled because not too long after that, Jerusalem is surrounded by the Assyrian army and they wake up one morning and 185,000 Assyrians were slain by the angel of the Lord. Scripture says there were 185,000 dead corpses lying around the city uh, one morning. And then after that, King Zennacherib, king of the Assyrian army, returns to Nineveh, and he is killed by his two sons. God doesn't need any help. He can take care of what he needs to do. The angel of the Lord, who is their king, he fought their battles for them. Without any help from any angelic, beings or any human beings, he drowned them, he dropped hailstones on them, or simply took the life out of them without any collateral damage. God doesn't need any help. He could certainly do the same things against the Romans if he wanted to. And I think he demonstrated that for us when he simply reorganized the molecular structure of water and turned it into wine. He commanded the wind and the wave to be calm when he was on the Sea of Galilee. He's controlling all of the elements. He dropped hailstones. He could do it again. He can reorganize the molecular structure of things. He called forth Lazarus, who was dead four days, and stinketh, called him forth from the grave. And you'll recall when he's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he identifies himself as the, quote, I am, everybody falls over backwards. The Lord coming down the Mount of Olives could simply say the word, and everybody would be dead, everybody. Or he could just destroy the Roman army. So here we have Christ riding down into Jerusalem on the colt, the foal of an ass, with the people crying out, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord, while they are placing palm branches and their clothing in front of him. To anyone that is watching this, this is so strange and peculiar a sight. How could you miss its fulfillment in prophecy? In Zechariah 9.9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, which they're doing. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly, riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. How could they miss that prophecy? That prophecy is not more obscure than the prophecy of Micah 5.2, which is what the chief priests and scribes made reference to when the wise men came and said, hey, where is he born that is king of the Jews? Herod comes to the scribes and the Pharisees. They go to their books and they go, well, Bethlehem. 
What's taking place now is far more, I think, observable and something they should appreciate than what is written in Micah 5.2. Zechariah 9.9 is so peculiar and specific. People shouting. And Jesus, the son of King David, is riding on the colt, the foal of an ass. Now, the prophecies surrounding his birth told us who was coming, how he was coming, where he was coming, and why he was coming. The prophecies surrounding his death tell us who is coming or who's going to be dead, killed, how it's going to happen, where it's going to happen, why it's going to happen, and when it is going to happen. It included such peculiarities as riding on a colt, a foal of an ass, that he would enter into Jerusalem and into the temple through the east gate, and what things the people were going to say. Prophecies contained all of those things. And so here comes Jesus down the mountain having salvation to fight a battle that we cannot fight against sin, Satan, the world, the flesh, and against death itself. Because these are all of the enemies of the elect. These are the things the Lord overcomes on our behalf, giving us the benefits of the victory over them. However... Doctrinally speaking, we need to understand this, that it is from God Almighty that man is ultimately saved from, because man, to his sin, abides under the wrath of God. The unregenerate man is at enmity with God and is subject to his wrath. And it is this context that the Lord Jesus rides down the Mount of Olives, across the brook Kidron, through the east gate, and into the temple itself, which he then cleanses by casting out those that sold and bought in the temple, overthrowing the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. He goes in there. It's the first thing he does. He cleanses the temple. And we should appreciate that this symbolizes our hearts. This is what the Lord's going to do. He's going to cast all of the foolishness out of our hearts, all of the idols out of our hearts. And he's going to make our heart the temple of God, which he identifies in the scripture as the house of God, Jesus' house and our house. It's going to become a house of prayer through his work. And this is clearly a war that cannot be fought with men, against men, by men, or one that would even involve an angelic host. It is a war fought in the heart of man, whereby victory might only be secured through the divine agency of God. The justice and judgment of God must be satisfied, and only God can satisfy God. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God made Christ, who is God, to be sin for us, for the benefit of the elect, and then he imputed his righteousness unto us. So, All of this is done to effect our salvation, the salvation of the elect, to save us from the wrath of God due our sins. God imputed our sins to Jesus Christ, who is God, and imputed the righteousness of God to the elect. And this is all done by faith. You cannot be more righteous than God himself. And that righteousness is imputed to the saints. So, the death of God is what is necessary to satisfy God, to bring salvation to men. 
In Isaiah 53, we read about this. We read about what uh, the Lord Jesus bore on our behalf at the hands of God. In verse 5 of Isaiah 53, it says, But he, that would be Christ, who is God, was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. He was wounded, he was bruised, and he was chastened by God for our benefit. In verse 8, it says, He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. What does it mean to be cut off from the land of the living? It means to be put to death. He was put to death by God. We know what the scripture says. Wicked hands have taken and crucified him, but it was all due to the um, foreordained counsel of God. Verse 10 and 11 of Isaiah 53. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He, that would be God, shall see the travail of his, Jesus' soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So what we see outwardly taking place in terms of the humiliation and abuse and abasement of Christ by the hands of wicked man was ordained by God and was but a shadow of what Christ actually suffered. He suffered the wrath of God for our sins. And so in our narrative here, here comes the king, the king of the true Jew, the Jew whose heart is circumcised, and save his people He will. He goes to the cross to redeem them from God for God. He goes to the cross to redeem them from God for God. In Psalm 24, verse 7 through 10, it says, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors. And the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And all these unmistakable signs are set right before their eyes and their ears, and they miss it. The sin of their envy and hardness of their hearts blinds them. In verse 19 of John chapter 12, it says, The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? In other words, you can't make the people be quiet. Behold, the world has gone after him. In other words, people from all nations are going after Christ. And we're going to see that here in verse 20 because it says that were Greeks that had come up there and they um, come to Philip and ask, we want to see Jesus. You can't stop it from happening. In Luke chapter 19, it gives a little bit more detail. In verses 39 and 40, it says, And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, speaking to Christ, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And then we have the Lord hesitating, perhaps stopping on his way down here. And we see what he does, knowing the consequences 
of their rejection of him. He knows what's going to happen to Jerusalem, and so he weeps. In verse 41 of Luke chapter 19, Luke 19, 41, it says, And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. In 70 AD, the Romans are going to lay siege to the city on the anniversary of his death. They're going to come down there when the city is teeming with people. All the men of war are going to be in that city, and that's when he's going to destroy it. By September of that same year of 70 AD, the Romans laid waste to the city. They burnt the temple down, and the casualties were absolutely horrific in terms of the Jews. So here is the Lord. He stops and he weeps. He's writing to his death for his beloved people, and yet he weeps over Jerusalem, weeping for people that will be destroyed because they have rejected him. In spite of all of the signs he has given them, all of the miracles that he has performed up to this time, all of the clear statements by himself about who he is and what he's doing, in spite of all of the prophecies surrounding his death, the ones that say who he is, how this is going to take place, where it's going to take place, why it's going to take place, and when it's going to take place. In spite of all of those things, they reject him and miss this very peculiar sign about, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, upon a colt, the foal of an ass. I can't imagine anybody else fulfilling this prophecy. What a sense of humiliation that a man would have to do to even pretend he is Christ to do something like this. And though he might get on a colt, the foal of an ass, and ride down that hill, the people aren't going to shout those words. They're not going to say Hosanna in the highest. And so the Roman observer, as he's watching all this, you wonder what's going through his mind. He sees a man riding a yearly ass, slowly come down the opposite hill. People are casting their clothes and palm fronds in front of him, and he sees him stop and weep, and he wonders, who is this king? Who is this king? And so we're going to close there and pray that God will reveal that king to everyone who hears the gospel, that they will know and appreciate that it is Jesus Christ, the King of glory, the Lord of hosts, who is mighty in battle. Amen. Amen.